Welcome back to the Grand Valley Church Podcast, a community of faith in Brandon, Manitoba. We hope this message helps you meet Jesus and grow in faith. So in this series, The Problem of God, we've been tackling some big topics. We started off talking about God's existence, saying, is there logical and rational reasons to believe why God exists? We've talked about science and faith and how science and faith are actually more aligned than we tend to think they are. They're not in conflict at all. We talked about suffering. Why does suffering exist? Why do evil things happen? And how do we find and meet God in the midst of those? And we, in that one, we kind of compared Christianity against other worldviews and other world religions and how they kind of match up and stack up when you put them beside each other. And then we've also talked about hypocrisy. How come sometimes there's such a gap between the ideal of who we want to be and the real of who we are and how that gap oftentimes, you know, I I like the line that Kerry Newhoff used in that one of saying sometimes the reason you're not a Christian is because you know too many of them. And we all kind of have been in that position where the way we've lived our lives hasn't actually matched up to how we want to live our lives. And so we talked about that. And then last week, we were actually, for Thanksgiving weekend, we talked about sex, and we talked about how God created sex to be something good for us, but he did put some boundaries around us so that we can experience a greater freedom and more fulfillment within those boundaries. And the the big part of that whole piece talks down to that your identity is not actually based in your sexuality. Your identity is based in being a loved and adopted child of God. That's how God sees us. And so today, we're talking about the problem of exclusivity. We're talking about the fact that Christianity claims and says that Jesus said this in John 14, verse 6. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. This is what's called an exclusive claim. It says this is the only path. All other paths don't work. And so we're going to dig in this today, but just as we do, this sermon series is based on a book by a pastor in Vancouver called Mark Clark, called The Problem of God. If you want to take any of these topics and go deeper into it, and there's a few topics he approaches in the book that we're not, we don't have the time to cover in this series, uh, I just want to invite you to check that out. I know someone's already spoken for my copy once this series is done, but if there's a waiting list, I'm okay with being a library. But as I said, today we're talking about this exclusivity piece, about Jesus making this claim. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, when we see this, I'm kind of going to hazard a guess here and say there's really two responses that come up to this. The first response might be that you look at this and you accept it. And you say, yes, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And, you know, you probably find some comfort in that of saying, you know, this is the path I've chosen for my life. But maybe you're here and you've got some questions about Christianity. You're not sure where you are if you say, you know, I believe what Jesus said about himself or not. Or maybe you just got, you know, brought here by a friend and you're, you know, what's this church thing that you brought me to? But you might look at this and say, you know, I don't really like that. Like, how can you say that you have the only way to God? How can you say you only have that? Because really, that seems, to be honest, it seems a little un-Canadian, you know, Canada is known as, you know, we're the, you know, we're the, the mixing pot where we take, you know, everyone from every culture is welcome to come here and make a life. And we, you know, we live and we coexist with each other. You know, isn't it, shouldn't we all just, you know, get along and accept everything? And in fact, if you, if you peel back the layers of, of how Western society tends to work, we actually almost have this, like, Mark Clark calls it the Western nicety religion 
of saying, you know, we all just, you know, accept what everyone believes and just, you know, just disregard if there's differences, just get along so that you don't cause problems. You know, that's kind of our Canadian way, isn't it? You know, we, we just, you know, get along with each other. You know, we're known for being, you know, polite to a fault. You know, you've all done this where, you know, you've bumped into someone and they say, sorry, you know, like, oh, sorry, I was in your way. Like, that's what we do. We're Canadian. But when we look at a passage like this, Jesus makes this exclusive claim. There's only one way. So this exclusive claim is one of the reasons why sometimes people will say they have issues with Christianity. How can you say you're the only way? And we're not talking about, like, sometimes people don't like Christianity because, you know, they have had bad experiences in the past. That's what we talked about with the hypocrisy topic. Today we're talking about this ex- exclusivity. And as I mentioned before, we're, we're using this kind of key phrase for this whole series that it's better to base our beliefs on what's true rather than what we feel or what we want to be true. So we're trying to say what is true in this and how do we get to that? Because our faith and our relationship with God needs this strong foundation. So I want to start things off by asking a question that I want to invite you to respond to in the YouVersion event. This one, why do you think many people want to believe that all paths lead to God? You know, when you think about that, when someone says, well, I, I think that every, every path leads to God, why do people believe that? What, what are maybe some of the things you've encountered or maybe a, a viewpoint that you've held in the past? And we're going to discuss that before we wrap up today. But one of the most common ones is saying that, you know, it just feels more loving to accept everything. It just feels more like we're loving our neighbor if we just accept whatever they say is true. And we say, well, that's true for you, and this is true for me, and we take that position. But there's a problem with that. Because if we're trying to say we're inclusive of every single view, if we say, you know, all paths lead to God, every religion is true— that's actually an exclusive and untrue statement. And it's really, it's simple logic. because So we know Christianity already makes this claim of saying, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one gets to the Father except through me. And Christianity is not the only belief system that makes an exclusive claim. Islam says, you know, Allah is God, Muhammad is his prophet, and there's the six pillars and the five divine requirements. And if you don't follow those six pillars and you don't do those five divine requirements in the course of your life, guess what? You're out. Buddhism is actually the same way. We, we tend to think that Buddhism is very open, but Buddhism is actually a split from Hinduism that happened about 560 BC. And Buddhism says, you know, following our teachings and our path is the only path to enlightenment, the only path to nirvana, and anyone who doesn't get on this path with, uh, with us, well, you're just all lost. And then we also have things that have um, atheism says, you know, all religions are false. There is no God. And so if we had, you know, five people and one person says all religions are true, person B says Christianity is true, then Islam's true, then Buddhism is true, and then person E, the atheist, says all religions are false. When you look at this list, only one of them can be telling the truth. Because it's a logical fallacy to say, well, if all five of them are telling the truth, how do we reconcile that? When all five of them are saying contradictory statements. See, the inclusive view of saying, well, I believe everything's true, immediately becomes exclusive to anyone who holds to a belief system that says, no, we're the only way to God. So there's this this contradiction that somehow we have to wrestle with when someone says, well, I believe your way is true and that way is true. And if I'm talking with someone who has that view, it's like, well, no, wait, you've just dismissed and diminished 
my belief system by saying all belief systems are true. So only one of these people can be telling the truth. So which one is it? Now, we don't really have the time today to go through the claims of each of those ones. But we're in a church, and I'm assuming, based on that, that you're at least curious or more interested in Christianity. And so we're going to track why Christianity has this exclusivist position and why it's so different than every other belief system that holds to an exclusivist position. Christianity has something that sets us completely apart and completely different from the rest of the viewpoints in that list. And so we're going to focus on Christianity. And next week, we're going to focus specifically on the historicity of Christianity. How can we look back at history and say, did Jesus really live? Was there a man from Galilee named Jesus who did what he said he did in Scripture? Did he actually rise from the dead? How does that change things? That's what next week is going to be. So we're not going to dive deep into the history of who Jesus is today. But we're just going to talk about this framework of why Christianity says we are the way, the truth, and the life, why we're the path to God is found in Jesus. And so, but before we get that, I want to talk about one other form of this all religions are true that comes up very common. Because we already said the exclusivity of Christianity's truth is radically different. We're going to get to that in just a moment. But here's the other approach that we often see when people want to focus on why, you know, we should just accept everything as it is. And it's called the buffet table approach. You know, everyone's been to a buffet at least once, right? Do you remember when we used to have, like, Bonanza in Brandon? Like, I was a little kid, so, I mean, when you're a kid, it seems, like, giant. Like, it felt like you go in there and there's just miles of food and everything you could pick from. You know, I'm sure if I walked into a Bonanza now, I'd be like, oh, that's it? That's, that's all they serve? Like, but you know when you're a kid, you think it's just this, everything's open, everything's there, and, you know, you can take a new plate up as many times as you want and refill it and, you know, eat until you kind of hate yourself because you've eaten so much. But it's, it's fun, isn't it? Kind of. I'm, I'm not the only one that's done that. Come on. Don't leave me hanging out to dry like that. But here's the thing with the buffet table approach, is this is the approach where we want to pick and choose little bits of every different belief system and worldview and say, I'm going to you know, build my own. So maybe I really like the way that Jesus talks about love. I like the way he talks about loving one another. I like the way he talks about caring for the vulnerable, for the sick, for the poor, you know, our responsibility to make a difference. You know, I like all that. And you know, I kind of like this free grace thing, but I want to throw a little bit of Hindu karma in that. Because karma says, if I do good things, then the world owes me good things. Huh? That, that sounds kind of attractive, doesn't it? And at a first glance, you might do that. And if you go back to our sermon on suffering, you'll actually see we, we dig into what karma is and how it's actually a very negative worldview compared to grace because karma says that you're liable for every bad thing you've ever done. And in fact, if you help someone out of their suffering, if you do something to alleviate what they're going through, well, karma has to repunish them because they haven't served their debt uh, under a karmic worldview. But often it's common, you know, we take this, well, if I do good, I can expect good things to come back to me. Or maybe we take some, some new age philosophy and we toss that in as well. And we say, you know, we're just, we're connected to everything and we just got to be at one with everything. I really like that. Let's stick some of that in. And what happens with this buffet table approach is it's all about yourself, it's all about, I like this piece of that, and I like this piece of that, and I like this piece of that, I like this piece of that, and let's just shove them together and call it a belief system. 
And in fact, what it turns into is, you know, you've all done that meal where, you know, you forgot to pull something out and you look at the fridge and there's all these, you know, Tupperware containers of different leftovers. And you think, you know, I'll just grab a little bit of everything. I'll put it on a plate, toss it in the microwave, and that'll be the meal. Like, then it doesn't really taste that well good, you know, because it's all like five days worth of leftovers morgues together. And then you end up like having to just douse it in hot sauce to hide the flavors of everything because they don't go along with each other. You've all done that. Like, it's not just me. But here's what happens with that. When we take that smorgasbord approach and we take little pieces of everything and we shove it together, there's no cohesiveness. There's no foundation under it. There's no solid base to say, this is why I believe what I believe. Because if a situation comes up in life that challenges your buffet table approach, well, what do you have to do? You have to add something new. Because, oh, all these pieces that I took from Christianity and Hinduism and Islam and New Age and whatever else, if we shove that all together and something comes up that these can't respond to, well, I've got to add something more to it, don't I? And, but then how does that relate to this and to this and to this? When we take this buffet table approach where we say it's all about me and whatever pieces I want to pull together, there's no foundation under it. There's no foundation of belief to say this is why we actually believe what we believe. And so here's the second question I want to ask you to consider. Why is it important to have a solid foundation under our beliefs? And secondly, what are some of the problems that come up if we don't have that solid foundation under our beliefs? So how do we wrestle with that if we say, well, I just picked and choose what's really what, what I like? What's the foundation? What's the basis? Where's the strength underneath that? So we've looked at two ways of this inclusive perspective, saying, well, everything must be true, and you know, that really doesn't hold water because something, you know, not everything can be true. And we said, secondly, it's not really true and inclusive when we take this buffet table approach because it doesn't hold water either because it falls apart because there's no connectedness, there's no cohesiveness, there's no foundation under it. And so I want to focus in on why Christianity. And there's two kind of main things that we're going to talk about here. And the first has to do with how Christianity says we interact with other beliefs and other worldviews and other religions. And every day, you know, we rub shoulders with people who hold different belief systems than we do. Maybe it's within your own family. Maybe it's your coworkers, your neighbors. You know, on a daily basis, we're interacting with people who don't believe the same things we do. And so that always comes to this question, well, how do we interact with people? How do we work together? If we're not saying, I'm going to endorse what you believe is as true, how do we still work together? And I want to take us to a time when the religious leaders were trying to trap Jesus. They were trying to find a reason why they could prosecute him under their own law to, for being a false teacher. And so these religious leaders came to Jesus and they said, out of all our covenant, out of all our commands in scripture, everything from the, what we call our Old Testament for them, they just called it their Hebrew scriptures. Out of all the commands in that, out of 613 commands, what is most important? And Jesus replied, He said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. Then he says this, the entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. So Jesus is saying, you can take all the commands from this much of the Bible, from Genesis through to the end of the Old Testament, um, to Malachi, 
And you can sum the 613 things that God commands in that chunk down to two sentences. Now, this is, this is Matthew. Uh, Matthew was one of the eyewitnesses, one of the disciples who walked with God. He recorded this. And then Luke, who also tells this story of Jesus interacting with his, these religious leaders, Luke carries on the conversation. And Luke includes this because then the religious teacher says, well, how do I find a loophole in that? Love God, love your neighbor. Like, that's pretty basic. There's got to be a loophole in this. And so he asks Jesus this question. He says, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus, in his usual Jesus fashion, doesn't actually just say, well, this is who's your neighbor. He says, let me tell you a story. And so Jesus tells this story of a Jewish man who was traveling where a group of robbers set upon him and beat him to within an inch of his life. This Jewish man is lying in the ditch, almost dead. And who should come upon him but a Jewish priest? The priest comes along and sees this man battered and bloody and beaten in the ditch of the road. And the priest goes to the other side of the road and carries on his way. And then Jesus says, a little while later, a second man came. And this, this one was a temple assistant, one of the people who wasn't a priest but worked in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. And the temple assistant came and saw this man beat up and bloody in the ditch on the side of the road. And he walked to the other side and carried on. And Jesus says, but then a third man came. And this man was a Samaritan. Now the Samaritans were the hated enemy of the Jewish people. Because back in their history, when the northern kingdom fell to Assyria, the kingdom of Assyria planted people from other nations into that land to repopulate it so that the Jewish people couldn't take it back over. And those people were called Samaritans. And because they were occupying the land that the Jewish people said belonged to them, and they had fought over it for a long time, Samaritans were, you know, the enemy. Like, if you're a Bombers fan, the Samaritans are the riders and vice versa, right? Like, hated enemy. That doesn't even get a laugh? All right. So Jesus tells this story. This hated enemy of the Jewish people comes along and finds this man in a ditch. What does the Samaritan do? The Samaritan man cleans his wounds, puts him on his donkey, takes him to the next town to an innkeeper, gives the innkeeper money and says, take care of this man. If his bills exceed this amount of money I'm giving you, I'll settle the debt when I come back the next time. And then Jesus asks the question of the religious leaders, who was the neighbor to the beaten man? It wasn't the religious leader. It wasn't the guy who worked in the temple. It was their enemy. When Jesus was questioned, who is the neighbor that I'm supposed to love? He says, even your most hated enemy. Even the people you disagree with the most, the people you, that upset you the most, they are still your neighbor. So they're included in this second is equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. This is what's different about Christianity because this is our approach to everyone else. Everyone is our neighbor, not just who literally lives beside you, not just who's sitting beside you in the seat today. Everyone is our neighbor. So how do we show love to them? And Mark, in the book, I'm going to read a quote to you from this, and he uses some terms that I'm going to explain as we go. Mark says this, one culture... Our culture assumes if my beliefs are different or critical of something you do or do believe, then we cannot tolerate one another. We mistake cultural pluralism, which means acceptance and celebration of different cultures, peoples, races, and religions, 
we confuse that with metaphysical pluralism. Now, let me break down that word. Meta just means beyond. Physical, we're talking about, so what's beyond the physical world? So it encompasses anything that's supernatural, anything that goes beyond our physical experience. So that includes the whole realm of who God is, because God exists outside of our physical realm. He's supernatural, he's divine, he's beyond our existence. Mark says, we mistake cultural pluralism with metaphysical pluralism, accepting as true all the ideas, convictions, and worldview of those peoples and religions. So let me break this down a little further. When we talk cultural pluralism, that's what Canada lives. When we talk about being a country where we welcome refugees, where we welcome people to come in and settle, and we respect, and actually, to be honest, Jesus, in this command to love your neighbor, would say, we actually need to endorse the rights of people to believe whatever they want to believe. But it does not mean we are endorsing it as true. In fact, Christians... Um, throughout history have been some of the first groups to recognize and say, no, that group should be allowed to believe what they believe. Even though we don't agree with it, even though we don't think it's true, it is our duty as followers of Christ, if we're going to live out this command to love God and love your neighbor as yourselves, to protect the rights of anyone to believe what they believe. But it does not mean for a second that we are endorsing it and saying, well, that's true as well. Do you see the difference between a, a cultural pluralism and a metaphysical pluralism? We're not, Christianity is not metaphysically pluralistic, but we are culturally pluralistic. And I'm going to read a verse at the end of the sermon that's going to drive this home and really make this make sense. Because when Jesus said that this Samaritan was the neighbor to the Jewish man, and he used that to tell them that you need to love your neighbor, he was saying, those people that you hate, those people that you would seek to kill and exterminate because you think they are less than human, they are your neighbor, and you need to protect their right to exist, their right to believe what they believe. Why? This is where it gets even better. See, Christianity's exclusivism is actually radical inclusivity. When we talk about Jesus' claim that I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, it is not actually as exclusive as a claim as we think it is. Because what Jesus is actually saying in that is anyone who wants can come to the Father through me. Anyone, regardless of background, regardless of race, regardless of previous belief, regardless of worldview, is welcome to come and be in the depth of a life-giving relationship to be loved and adopted by God. We know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We know he's the path, but that path is open to absolutely everyone. And this is what makes Christianity different from every worldview that was on that list I showed you before. Because no other worldview takes this approach. No other religion takes this approach of saying, we need to protect the rights of others to believe what they want to believe so that we can have opportunities to share God's love and invite them into a deeper relationship with God. Christianity's exclusivism is actually radical inclusivism. It's an invitation to be part of everything. Everyone is loved by God. And last week, when we talked about sex and we talked about that piece of identity, that our identity is not found in our sexuality. Our identity is found 
in being a loved and adopted child of God. We took that from Ephesians 1, 4 to 5. And today I'm going to take us a little further in that passage to Ephesians 1, 9 to 11. So this passage comes from a letter that Paul was writing to the Ephesian church to encourage and strengthen them to carry on when they were facing a difficult situation. And this is what Paul says to them. And this is a longer passage. I'm going to kind of break it down as we go. God has now revealed to us his mysterious plan regarding Christ, a plan to fulfill his own good pleasure. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we're united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God. For he chose us in advance and he makes everything work out according to his plan. At the right time, Christ will bring everything, everything on heaven and everything on earth. And when he says this under authority, he's using a form of authority that's not about rulership, but that's a form out of of a protective relationship. He's talking about how a, a king is indebted to their subjects to protect and provide for them and make a way for them to live and earn their livelihood. He's talking about how rulers are actually servants. That's what this talks about. And then Paul goes on, verse 12. He says, God's purpose was that we Jews who were the first to trust in Christ would bring, would bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles, which is a term that means anyone who's not Jewish, have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit whom he promised long ago. This is the progression that Jesus came and those who first believed were then challenged to say, how do we share this with everyone? This is that inclusivity of Christianity coming forward of saying, it's our task to go forward to be able to share God's love, even with people who disagree with us, who have different beliefs than us. Our responsibility is to show love, to care, and be part of this so that they can be part of what Paul is talking about here. So they can be part of being identified with Christ. They can be part of receiving the Holy Spirit that God gives to us. Nothing is as inclusive as this. Because what Paul is saying, he's talking about how God's plan is that no matter what separates you, no matter what had you distant from God, you can choose to come in. You can choose to come to Christ. And then in a letter to a different church, to the churches of Galatia, Paul wrote this, and it's one of, one of the passages that always convicts me. He says this, And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, riders or bombers fans. There's no more conservative or liberal or NDP. There's no more Democrat or Republican. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. Now this promise to Abraham goes all the way back to Genesis 12. When God chose Abraham, And said, your descendants, the whole earth will be blessed through your descendants. And Abraham has no children. And it becomes even a miracle that Abraham and Sarah have one child. That's not a great nation. That's not many descendants. But the whole story of scripture from Genesis through to Revelation is the story of every person, every being, every nation on earth having the opportunity and being included in this ability to come to Jesus. The path to God is open. 
to anyone who comes to Jesus. That is the exclusive claim of Christianity. The exclusive claim is that God is available to everyone through Jesus. That's not actually an exclusive claim anymore, is it? That's a claim of inclusivity, of saying, we want to share Christ with you. Now, I want to ask a third question, because this one gets to the core of how do we actually live this out? And this third question is this, how do you describe, how would you describe the radical inclusivity of Jesus to someone who has only ever experienced the exclusivity of Christians? I'm going to tell you a quick story before we get to the conversation. Back in high school, I did a design drafting program, and it was a double time slot class, so we would spend two hours a day, every day of the week, with the same group of people. And there was four of us that shared this little pod of computers. And so you're designing houses and engineering things and doing all stuff on the computer, and so you talk with one another. And in this group of four, there was three Christians and an atheist lesbian. And we spent two hours a day together every day of the week. And, you know, we were friends. We hung out with each other outside of class. And finally, near the end of grade 12, one day, there was kind of a lull in the conversation. And she said to, to the three of us, she said, you know, you three all believe in God. And you've talked openly about that. How come you don't hate me? And the three of us didn't actually know how to respond. I mean, we were 18, 17, 18. We kind of were like, uh, well, why would we hate you? Jesus commands us to love. And so what happened then is in the middle of class, she starts opening up to the three of us and talks about the small town she grew up in and how every single person who went to the church in that town, the way they treated her was appalling. Like, I'm disgusted thinking about it. They would write letters and stick them in her mailbox talking about how much of a heathen and how much of a sinner and how horrible of a person she was. And not one of them had ever spoken to her face to face. And the three of us, you know, we were kind of like, we're sorry. If that's your experience with the church, we're sorry. Because that's not who God calls us to be. That's not who Jesus calls us to be. And we didn't really have the terms for it, but we apologized to her. We said, you know, it wasn't us that did that, but we're sorry. Can we say sorry on behalf of the church to you? You know, we never actually talked about that conversation again. It happened one day and it ended. And after high school, the the four of us kind of all parted our ways and went different directions and we're not really in contact with each other anymore. But it's my hope that in that moment, she saw a piece of this inclusivity when all she had ever experienced before in her life was the exclusivity. And so that's this third question, but I'm going to take us back to the top. Max got a microphone, and I'm going to invite you to stick up your hand if you want to respond to one of these three questions. We're going to start at the top. Why do you think people want to, and um, I think for this one I'll just read out a couple of the ones that are here and then we'll move to the discussion on question two. Why do you think many people want to believe that all paths lead to God? Here are some of your responses, because it's easy. It feels otherwise that God favored certain people and cultures. And here's a good one. And before Jesus, what happened to all others? Why not send a savior to every corner of the earth? Romans 1 has some really fascinating things to say about that. And there's, I can't remember the citation off the top of my head right now. It's in 1 Peter or 2 Peter. But Peter says this fascinating thing, and we get one verse on it, so we don't really know the whole piece. But Peter says, and we know that after our Savior was crucified, he went down into Hades, the place of death, and ministered the gospel to the souls there. And so we get one verse. 
And I'm like, okay, what does that mean? I want more, but Peter doesn't give us more. So we'll just have to ask that question later. But what, I, what it does say is even in Peter's letter, he's saying everyone who died before Jesus came, they still got an opportunity. What that opportunity looked like, we have no idea. We'll ask Jesus when we get to see him face to face. We want to avoid conflict. Uh, maybe we want to be free to live how we want. Here's a common one. We want to make God in our own image. We want our version of God to reflect all the things we like. Yeah, if, have you ever thought, does God only like the things you like? Well, maybe you've made God in your own image. Gives them. It seems so arrogant to say that the religion we just happen to grow up in is the one true religion, and others need to accept it to approach God. That's why we're doing this series. Because we need to take our own beliefs and put them under the microscope, say, do these hold up as true? That's what it means to actually have a healthy level of skepticism and doubt. So how about this second question? Why is it important to have a solid foundation under our beliefs? And so for this one, if you've got something you want to say or add to, just stick up your hand and Mac's going to bring you the microphone and we'll have a little conversation about this. So why is it important to have a solid foundation under our faith? Any, any thoughts on that? Any perspectives? Yeah, without the foundation, it's just going to crumble. Without, without a basis. Where, where do you find your core? What, what else? Any other thoughts on that? Or how about for the second one? What, are, what problems come up if we don't have a strong foundation under our, our beliefs, under our viewpoint? Our beliefs can be easily eroded or you can be uh, misled by others as soon as you uh, are on shaky ground or not around uh, like-minded people, it's much easier to, oh, yeah, maybe that is true. Or maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. It's interesting you brought up one, one little phrase in there I want to highlight. It's easy to be misled. And actually, that's one of the most common themes in all the letters written after Jesus' resurrection, all the letters the apostles wrote to churches. I think every single one, yeah, every single one includes a warning don't be misled. This is why you need to be strong in your faith so that the false teachers out there don't steer you astray. And that's a whole topic for another day. Uh, any more thoughts on this one before we move on to three? So this third question, how would you describe the radical inclusivity of Jesus to someone who has only experienced the exclusivity of Christianity? How would you share that inclusivity? Just So a person who has only experienced the exclusivity of Christians is not going to be interested in some Christianese explanation with Bible verses and all of this stuff. The Describing the radical inclusivity is not the thing. It would have to be demonstrated, and that would be the only way that you would reach people, just like your story. Yeah, you have to demonstrate it. Are we living out this inclusivity? Yeah, that's a key part. And that's, that was what our, even our whole the sermon that we had here by video on, on hypocrisy is we actually have to live out what we believe if we want to be able to share God's love with others. Any other thoughts on this third question? I think that we have to pretty much be consistent with that uh, what Drew was saying, uh, 
I grew up in what a lot of people regard as a cult, and my most of my family are out of it, but some are very angry at Christianity, some are ambivalent, and uh, to be a Christian with them, I just have to keep showing them the love, and I, I will say to them, you know what, their version is not the right version, and you know, Jesus commanded us to love, but you know, I got to show that to them all the time, mm-hmm. and maybe it's working, maybe it's not on them, but I keep praying for them, I keep loving them, and and that's something really important. God always plays the long game. You know, we may not see, even though, like, especially when it's family, and we, you know, we desperately want our family members to know the the fullness and the abundance of life with Christ that we have. But we're not going to convince them in one weekend or one time. And I just want to encourage you, just keep keep doing that. Keep taking the time. You know, there's there's people in my family that I still pray for daily and hope for opportunities. And, and when they're receptive, I'll bring it up. But we can't force it down their throats. We can't force them to talk about it if they don't want to. But I just want to encourage you, keep on with that. And that's, that's this whole piece of how do we share this? We have to live it. You know, that's why we're doing this series to say, how do we actually live out these pieces? How do we actually hold to them? How do we make them clear? Because ultimately what we need to do is we need to focus on what's true. We need to hold to the truth of who Jesus is, what he, what he said he did. Because at the core, and what I hope we've demonstrated in this series, is that Christianity stands up to the most rigorous cross-examination you can come up with. I said from the beginning, we're not dealing with straw man arguments here. We're dealing with real arguments because Christianity holds up. And next week, I want to invite you to make sure you're here next Sunday. Because we're talking about the problem of Jesus. So a lot of people say, you know, I like Jesus, I like his teachings, I like his sayings, but this whole coming back from the dead thing, it's a little far-fetched, isn't it? You know, you've probably encountered that or thought it yourself, and that's what we're going to focus on next Sunday. We're going to take the historical perspective, and we're going to say, what evidence is there that Jesus existed that doesn't come from the Bible? Because it's easy for someone to say, well, that's just your own book. What, what is there for outside of the Bible that says this is who Jesus is and what what he did and what he accomplished. And we're going to look at some of that evidence and we're going to really focus in on did Jesus really come back to life? Because that's the big question. And so I want to invite you to make sure you're back here next Sunday as we wrap up this series, The Problem of God, and we're going to talk about the problem of Jesus. So let me pray for you before we go. God, thank you so much that you love us so deeply, that you call all of us from no matter what our background is, no matter what our experience is, into a deeper and fuller relationship with you. And I pray this week that we would all experience and see that in some way, that we would see your inclusivity, we would see the way you draw us in, and we would see your love for us. And that you call us to walk with you, you call us deeper in a relationship with you, and you love us so much that you don't want to leave us where we are. And so God, I pray that this week we would take those steps forward, that we would lean into your radical love and your radical inclusivity, and that you would show us the opportunities that you place in front of us to share your love and your inclusivity with people around us. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Folks, thanks for being here again next week. We're wrapping up this series. I hope to see you here.
We hope this message helped you to take the next step in your faith journey. If you're in the area, we'd love to have you join us Sundays at 11 a.m. You can find out more about us by going to mygrandvalley.ca.